it was always funny because <laughs> shout out to Paul Appiano. He was, I, I sat right next to him at FBI and he's an amazing officer. Paul, if you listen to this, forget about it. Paul said something that I'll never forget. He was like, yeah, the undercover work, you know, through DPD and these other agencies is fine, you know, but it's not like what these guys are doing. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, everybody wants to come in and brag about, yeah, I bought a kilo. I bought two kilos. I bought five kilos. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, these guys are buying stinger missiles, you know, try pulling that off. Try convincing somebody to sell you a surface to air missile. And that's what these guys were doing. And it, it opened my eyes. That was the moment that opened my eyes that there's more to undercover work than buying drugs. And I was like, I want in on that. I, I, I want a part of that. You know, a lot of people see this type of work on television and you gotta be a crazy person or you gotta be the, you know, the loudest one in the room. There's nothing further from the truth. I'm super calm and I just let people talk to me and I get them to like me. And once they like me, they tell me everything. So all I have to do is get them to like me, figure out what they want, give it to them, and then betray them. You, you talk too normal. You don't talk like they do. You can't do it. You can't do this. And to date, as of this recording, I've successfully portrayed the undercover roles of drug dealer, drug user, drug cook, gambler, money launderer, sexual deviant, human trafficker, thief, left-wing anarchist, right-wing white supremacist, hitman, arms dealer, and a terrorist. And I've done all those things despite my entire career being told, you can't do that. So here I am, and how do you like me now? You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Although the first documented organized undercover police route started in France in the early 1800s, New York City Police Department created the first official undercover assignment known as the Italian Squad in 1906 to combat the rampant crime in the poor Italian neighborhoods. The need for covert and clandestine operations have evolved over the years and have been used for just about every type of crime imaginable. In the United States is one of the most effective tools the department can use to battle the war against drugs. The U.S. has had a problem with drugs since the country's inception. In the 1890s, the popular Sears and Roebuck catalog offered a syringe and small amount of cocaine for $1.50. At that time, cocaine had not yet been outlawed. The U.S. tried several pieces of legislation, like the Harrison Act, the Marijuana Tax Act, 1937, and then President Nixon signed the Controlled Substance Act in the 70s. The CSA outlines five schedules used to classify drugs based on their medical application 
and potential for abuse. Nixon declared the war on drugs and stated that drug use was public enemy number one. Ronald Nancy even had a famous Just Say No to Drugs campaign. And nearly 50 years later, every major city, U.S., has drug problems. All the violence that comes with it. Today's guest has fought that fight with the Dallas PD for over a decade. He's bought dope in South Dallas, North Dallas. He's worked with white supremacists, dipped his toe in the fight against Islamic extremism. He's played a bomb maker, a weapons dealer. Famous undercover operatives come to mind like Donnie Brasco, Jack Falcone, William Queen as he took on the Mongols MC gang. Jay Dobbins, living with the Hells Angels, our African-American policeman, Ron Stallworth, actually infiltrating the KKK in the 70s. Today's guest is not this. He doesn't have a great long-term deep cover case or stories, as they are, in fact, super rare. He did grow up in a large second-generation Italian immigrant family. He started his career in a little-known business called Yahoo. He grew up around criminals. He never wanted to be a cop. He doesn't get along with most cops and never gravitated to the cop life. He's traveled around the country working cases for domestic terrorism and was awarded the USAO Award of Excellence for helping to prevent suspects from putting C4 on a plane in Dallas. Today's guest is also clinically diagnosed as a highly functioning psychopath. We're not judging this man. As this trait has made him exceptional at his craft. And quite frankly, with his boxing background and the fact that he is legitimately a psychopath, I'm kind of scared of him. Let's finally dive into this with Detective Hodak. Badge 8227, welcome to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. We've been trying to get this episode going for, hell, a year, I think. You, you know, I've... Uh, the hardest person to get locked down has been Danny because he's he's always got something going. So, but Kennedy uh, worked with you in narcotics, and uh, he had to be part of this this episode. So, yeah, I had heard about your show. You know, we were taking that group training together. I think it was Core, and uh, you were telling me about your show, and I was like, "Wow, that's so interesting. How come I've never heard of this?" And we went to lunch, and I remember asking you, so do you have episodes on there where you talk to undercovers about the stressors of that? Cause I'd like to listen to those. And you looked at me and I looked at you and you're like, nah, I never thought about that. Undercovers don't have stress. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ends up, and then Joe ends up calling me and he's like, we want to put you on the show. I was like me, I wasn't talking about me. No, but as you were talking, my wheels were turning and, and that usually is what happens. Somebody starts telling me something and I really blank out of what they're actually saying. And I start thinking about, selfishly my own shit to get my own product better <laughs> and that's what happened with you so yeah well i'm i'm honored i'm, I'm a big fan of the show so thanks man it's nice to i've been looking forward to this steve yeah, this yeah danny's be... smiling from here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we, we've done a couple of these now and danny hasn't ever said like i have to be there for <laughs> not, not too many of those get the the danny agreement so yeah you no know, i'm ready to get you ready to dive into it i'm ready all right you want to talk about home life uh growing up and Little Erie, Pennsylvania. Little Italy, yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, and my neighborhood was called Little Italy, and it was a bunch of, 
you know, either first, second, third, fourth generation Italian immigrants. And, you know, there's a lot of other families, Irish and uh, English and stuff like that. But it was uh, it was rough. It was a rough neighborhood. You know, I, I I believe that I had a blessed childhood growing up. I wouldn't look back and say that my childhood was bad or anything like that. It was it was great. But looking back, it was a rough neighborhood, but not in the sense of what most people think, you know, guns, drugs and gangs. We didn't have that. It was violent. I mean, you had to stand up for yourself at every turn. And I just I would get into fight after fight after fight all the time. Well, I kind of referenced your boxing career, so it probably started early just growing up in Pennsylvania there. Yeah, it was uh, definitely cutting my teeth there, but um, it was uh, it was a good neighborhood. You know, a lot of uh, Catholic schools, you know, everybody was being taught by nuns and stuff like that, but it was, uh, you know, there was pizzerias on every corner. Uh, it, it was a great neighborhood. I'm, I'm very blessed. So your last name, Hodak, what is the origin of of your last name i've never heard of that so it, it's uh, i still to this day don't really know i believe it to be a truncated version of a uh slovenia slovakian name um my dad's dad his name was hodak so that's how it got passed down but um my mom's side is you know english and italian there's italian on my dad's side as well and uh it's one of those things where you know you, you grow up I don't know 100% my genealogy, but if you know if you grow up in an all Italian household, you're just consumed by it, and that's what you identify with. How did that look? You said you're consumed by it. How that? It was it was a huge family. Everybody would get together, you know, on you know Saturdays, Sundays for big meals, things like that. All the kids would play together. All the adults would, you know, we'd have dinner, and then they'd all sit down and yelling cuss while they're playing cards at the dining room table and the rest of you know the rest of the kids were running around playing but um it was very tight and it was taught from a very young age that you, you know you don't go against the family you stand up for the family to the death and uh you learn loyalty and respect and if you don't give respect you don't get respect and you, you gotta you gotta if somebody doesn't want to give you respect you got to take it from them you know, I'm rewatching uh, <clears throat> the great show, The Sopranos, and I'm in season five. Did you ever? Well, I mean, that, that kind of they, the Italian family, even portrayed on that show, is the closeness, and you don't you you solve things within the family, and what you're describing reminds me of that. What that shows? Yeah, it's uh, I love that show. <laughs> oh, it's it's my favorite. It's my favorite all time. Yeah, it was, it was such a great show, and um, you know I. I had told you guys when you were asking for my bio, you know, I, I did grow up around, you know, low level criminals. Um, and you know, my immediate family, there's no, no criminals, but you know, I had an adopted cousin. He was a interstate drug trafficker. We didn't find that out till much later. Um, uh, you know, just small time guys in my family, my, you know, my older uncles and great uncles, you know, they were small time numbers runners. Um, for uh, social clubs and gambling organizations in the area. For when knowing what you know now, looking back, you kind of like, oh shit, I can see that. You know, like you, you do. You, can you see that now? Yeah, uh, <laughs> some of the stuff that would happen, you know, it didn't seem out of the ordinary at the time. But you look back and you're like, oh yeah, that, I don't think that could have been accomplished unless somebody knew somebody. Um, you know, you were never you were taught from a young age, you know, never to discuss the matters of the family outside 
uh, you know, of the household. You just didn't talk to anybody about that stuff. You, you became very secretive, um, very contained. And, uh, if you did, there was consequences, you know, you would get yelled at and stuff like that. But you, you were taught from a very young age that you need to, you know, protect the secrecy at all costs. That might be relevant later on the story yeah. <laughs> your, your career yeah it, it seems like where i eventually ended up now that i'm here i can look back and attribute so much of my life to training for this this role um that you know at the time you don't think anything of it you never th- i never in my life thought i would end up being a police officer let alone doing what i'm doing now what kind of kid were you I was, and I know we're going to talk about my uh, psychological diagnosis later, but I was a aggressive kid. I constantly, no, it didn't matter who I was around, I would adapt to be liked by the people that I was currently around. So I might be around the jocks, and I would adapt and act the way they did to be accepted by them. And then I would get around, you know, the really smart kids and I would adapt to be like them. I would get around the dumbasses and I would act like a dumbass. And it didn't matter. I was constantly adapting. And, uh, but I was, I felt like I was always challenged. So I was always getting into fights, um, played a lot of sports and I was very aggressive in those sports, constantly getting in trouble for, for fighting and things like that. And I didn't understand at the time where the aggression was coming from, but now now that I know myself better and I know my mental health better, I understand where all of it came from. And it started that early. Yeah, it was it was definitely at a young age. Um, my brother was always the smart one. He was always uh, logical, contained. He was able to control his emotions and things like that. I had thought my whole life, and I had been told my whole life, oh, Steve, you wear your emotions on your sleeve because things would happen, and out of nowhere it would bring me to tears. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't control that. But it was because any situation where I lose control, it brings me to tears and I can't control it. So as an adult, is that aggression still the same, do you think? Or you've it, it, it changed or you managed to control it? Because you're saying this and if I look back now, I see this controller reservation that you've had to do or use as an adult like when interactions with other people like there's always been something there with steve like something going on in the mind but you're just kind of gripping down on it and keeping control of it yeah from college on i have learned to control the impulses that i have and i've i think anybody who knows me now would say oh he's he's very calming to be around um he's he's you know just a normal guy and uh, it's because I am 24 hours a day or while I'm awake, I am constantly making active decisions on how I'm supposed to act in public. Um, I've been able to adapt to where I can do it on the fly and I can fit in to society where nobody senses anything is any different about me. Um, but I'm constantly thinking about it, constantly controlling it. So now I'm not, I'm not a violent person, not, not at all. Um, I think I was as a kid, I would just instantly go to throwing fists because 
I didn't know how to control my emotion or my thoughts. And uh, as an adult, I have supreme control over that. So I don't have that issue anymore. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't see anything violent in that course, but I would see frustration with people. Yes. And, and not, <laughs> you and I know what we're talking about. Frustration with certain people or certain groups of people, and I would see that frustration, and there would be that mask, and that people always got along with Steve because they're like, oh, he's easy enough to get along with, but there'd be like this facade that would kind of go up, and you knew there was something underneath there, and then it'd come out later, you know, when you're sitting down and somewhere, and he'd just kind of mutter something to you, and just like, that's like it was like <laughs> a show curtain coming down, and then slowly lifting back up, and then going right back down, yeah. peeking out. But yeah, in some ways, we shared similar views on work and people and yeah so work ethics of people and and yeah yeah yeah. things quality yeah yeah okay so yeah yeah, you have your you i think the listener is going to hear the very calm and soothing voice of detective hodak you know and so you do (laughs) definitely have it under control and you see sopranos when you're and i'm seeing like game of thrones character Hodak, yeah, yeah, Scandinavia. Yeah. Like, oh, we're not going to show his face, I think, right? No, so we're not like, going to show his face. It's like a Game of Thrones character here. Yeah, I wasn't, wasn't going to go to Game of Thrones and Hodor and ask him if yeah. there was no, any. Yeah, Hodor. <laughs> what were you really doing there? Talk about no. aggression and Scandinavia. Yeah. So I want to get into you moving to Tennessee and going to college. How did that look? Yeah, so after the uh, sixth grade, I believe it was, my mom got a job transfer, and we ended up moving down to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, uh, man, it was a culture shock because I had been around a lot of different people, but I had never been around country folk, rednecks, anything like that. And I was brought up to speed real quick with that. You know, there's this code of honor amongst, you know, southern boys and men. And, man, you don't cross it. Otherwise, there's going to be problems. And uh, I I learned my way. I learned how to adapt. But, um, yeah, moving to Tennessee was, was big. And, uh, but I, honestly, I was ready. I didn't, I don't have that kind of emotion where I hang on to it. Um, so I, w- I was ready to go and I was ready to start over. It was kind of cool to, you know, reinvent myself, you know, because if you know a group of people from the time you're in kindergarten till the time you graduate high school, all of your bad comes with you too. And they never forget that. So you get a chance to reinvent yourself and that, you know, that, plays a lot into these undercover roles. You know, if I make a mistake during one case, I can reinvent myself on the next case and I don't have that mistake hanging over me. But, um, yeah, it was, it was good. What was your long-term plan at that point going when you went to college? Going to college, (laughs) you know, I went in as a freshman and I met with my guidance counselor and she was like, you know, I, I assume you're undecided. And I was like, Oh no, ma'am. I I know exactly what I want to do. She was like, Oh, that's, that's rare for a freshman. So what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do computer science. And she was like, oh, okay, so you, you really enjoy math. I was like, no, ma'am, I hate math with a passion. She was like, oh, well, then you don't want to do computer science. She showed me the course listing, and um, I was like, okay, so what else do you have? Because I knew I wanted to work with computers. I was just fascinated by computers. So uh, I changed, and I ended up doing management information systems. And uh, it allowed me to do, like, business and computing hindsight it wasn't the greatest career but at the time you know back in 1995 it was a a very budding industry and they were like yeah if you know computers and business you're going to be all right god i wish i got into that back then well it's funny because i studied that stuff you know over 20 years ago and to this day i've got friends and people that are like hey my computer's broke you're good with computers like no i'm not that stuff changes so fast yeah it changed since yesterday i just want to clarify that i've I might be wrong here, 
but in Tennessee, I think those are hillbillies and not rednecks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, we don't want to offend the hills have eyes folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's all the uh, nuances, but uh, I had to learn them real fast. So you had it all figured out. You're getting out of college. You're going to start a computer career, and you start working for a little-known company called Yahoo? Yeah, so my brother, he went to um, Syracuse University, and when he graduated, he moved down to Dallas to work for Broadcast.com, which was owned by Mark Cuban. And um, while he was down here, uh, before I graduated, Yahoo wanted Mark's product. Um, So Yahoo bought Broadcast.com, and they rebranded it as Yahoo Broadcast. So Yahoo is out in California, but here in Dallas, they had... Cuban's webcasting product, which at the time was revolutionary. So uh, I used my networking through my brother to get an interview down here. And uh, I came down and I interviewed and they offered me the job and said, you know, when I graduate to just pack the car and move down. So um, at this point I was living in Memphis. Uh, I went to the university of Memphis and um, right after I graduated, I moved down and started working for Yahoo broadcast in deep Ellum. And, and for the listeners, uh, that's how Mark Cuban, when he sold that, uh, that's how he became a billionaire, right? Right, yeah. So he, I don't know all the ins and outs of his, uh, you know, the business transaction for that, but it was something to the effect of, you know, he he had Broadcast.com and he was able to sell that product to Yahoo for a huge sum of money. And then he owned a significant portion of Yahoo Broadcast. He was able to sell that to buy the Mavericks. Wow. What, what was your role there? So, project manager? Yeah, I was a, a senior project manager. And uh, what I would do is I was kind of the go between. We had tech guys like my brother that were uh, coders and they were building the product along with the graphic designers that would build the, the skin or the interface. And uh, they did all the hard work. And then there was the sales guys that would sell uh, the product to these you know, Ford and Victoria's Secret and GM and all these other companies. So they could do webcasting. They could do the Detroit Auto Show, the Victoria's Secret Show, things like that. Well, in be- after the sales would take place, but before the event, there was a project manager to deal directly with the client to be the go-between between the tech guys and the client themselves. And that's what I did. So how did somebody just getting out of college get that gig? I mean, you must have really you know, shine that interview. I was very, very lucky. I was definitely the envy of He my, adapted. He yeah. adapted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I used uh, my, you know, my three go-tos, my charm and deception and everything else to, uh, to gain that spot. But I was definitely the envy of my, my fellow students uh, prior to graduation. Cause everybody was wondering what the hell am I going to do? And I was like, well, I got this job already, you know, working for Yahoo. So um, it was it was really great to go down there, and I, honestly, I didn't know how good I had it because I've worked a million jobs. You know, in college, I was always working three jobs at the same time, along with you know going to school. But I get this job at Yahoo Broadcast. I'm working Monday through Friday, and every cop listening to this will understand how great this is. My job was Monday through Friday. Come in whenever you can. Just make sure you do all your work, and then leave whenever you want. Um, there's a, you know, cafeteria, there was a bean trees coffee inside the building that was free. It was like free Starbucks inside. That's when I started drinking coffee. I had never drank coffee in my life till that point. Um, the last Friday of every month, he, uh, Cuban would roll kegs into the, um, cafeteria and we would just start drinking at 5 PM. We'd go in there and start drinking beer 
before we stumbled out into Deep Ellum. And, you know, he, he was a great manager. There was a person that would come around and ask you, like, what candy you wanted at your desk. They passed out sleeping bags in case you needed to sleep at work. They He made the environment so welcoming that you didn't mind going to work. That sounds just like DPD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, sounds like the wellness unit. <laughs> You know, how strange was, how strange is it for you now to see him in, in the role of having a championship team and being and the Mavericks owner, he's very outspoken, but also seeing him like a shark tank and, and, uh, the benefactor seeing his growth as celebrity and you saw him back in the nineties. It's amazing. You know, I, I would see him like stumbling to, not stumbling to work. The guy's very composed, but I, I would see him, uh, walk into the office and he's the big dog. Everybody knew it. And he'd come in and flip flops and shorts and, you know, the, just rolling in. He would go over and he'd yell at the sales guys because, but they all took it because he was making them all millionaires. But then he was very calm and forgiving for everyone else. For it, it, that was my experience with him was he was a very, very nice dude. And uh, when it came to the tech side, he was very understanding and he would work with us and stuff like that. Sales guys, he was all over them, but they didn't care. So, is he from Pennsylvania? I don't know. Okay. I, don't, I don't know where he's from. I think he's Cuban. He's Cuban. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> a very good point. So the listener has heard we, we've had on uh, former Secret Service agent Sam Horwitz, and we we discuss a little known date, September eleventh, two thousand one. I want to forget. I want there's it's relevant for your story, and can you kind of get into that of how that that changed your life? Yeah, you know that's one of those dates where everyone my age definitely remembers where they were. I was walking into the building in Deep Ellum, and uh, my supervisor Charles walked up to me as I walked in the door, which was weird. He was greeting me at the door, and he was like, "Somebody just flew a plane into the World Trade Center in, uh, or the um the one of the twin towers in um." New York. And I was like, get out of here. What are you talking about? He was like, it's on the TV. Come here. There's TVs everywhere in there. So we go in and I'm, I'm just watching this shit unfold. And, uh, that ended up leading to where I am today because, um, once that happened, the stock market took a serious hit and tech stocks took a drastic hit. So at one point at that building on Crowdis, you know, we had three, 400 people working there. And it wasn't very long where they were laying off people in waves of 30 at a time. And I was in the third wave and we knew it was coming. And, uh, you know, I survived the first two waves. And then during the third wave, they, uh, they, you know, they came in, gave me the tap on the shoulder, said, we need to see you in the conference room. And I was like, here we go. So we go in, they gave us, you know, a good severance package, but laid us off. And I was thinking, well, wasn't sure what I'm going to do. So everybody goes back to their desk and they're crying. And I just start packing up my stuff. Now I had played, I'd been a very active lifestyle. I'd played sports all my life, things like that. So weirdly enough, I had been thinking for the past several months that I was kind of, I was happy with what I was doing. Not really, but I was getting bored. So I was thinking about doing volunteer fireman work. So I was packing up my shit at my desk and I was thinking, you know what? I'm just going to go down and apply with the fire department in Dallas. So it was like the next day or two days later, I go down. Um, it was still off of, I think main street at the time, the recruitment and all that. 
And I walked in, the fire department was like, now we're having a hiring freeze. And I was like, what does that mean? So he explains it to me and he goes, uh, like two doors down is the police department. You can apply over there. And even at that time, I was like, I don't want to be a, a police officer. Like I never thought, but I thought, you know what? I need a job in my whole life. The work ethic, the Italian background, they're like, get a job loser, you know? Yeah. So I wasn't about to sit around on my ass. So I, I went down and it was the recruiter was some guy named JD and I'm in there just like a total dumbass asking him all the questions that either I shouldn't have been asking or he didn't want to hear, but he was very patient with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, how many people die a year? And he's telling me, I'm like, is this like the military? Or if I don't like it, can I just quit? <laughs> I'm trying to get this job and I'm already asking this guy if I can quit. But uh, he's like, no, no, it's not like the military. If you don't like it, you just, you know, you pack up your stuff and you leave. And I was like, all right, yeah, sign me up. So <laughs> he's like, okay, it's Guys, I'm sure looking back, I'm sure that everybody that else that had gone in there was like, sir, I've been wanting to be a police officer my protect whole life. Serve, yeah. yeah, protect and serve. <laughs> I was like, yeah, whatever. I need a job. Hook me up. So when you when you got laid off at uh, at your job, did you not did you not because of the stock market? Did you just say, well, I'm this this career path and this field, I, I just, it's not a good time. Or did you even look at even something else in that field? You know, they, they, Yahoo had paid for us to go to this, uh, resume workshop, you know, career building thing. It was in a city place, uh, right off of 75. And I went to that and, you know, we worked on the resume and stuff like that. But the whole time I was working there, I was, I was happy. I was making money. I, I didn't realize how good of money I was making at the time until I <laughs> became a police officer making what 30 grand a year. And, uh, but I was very unsatisfied. I, I needed something else. I needed some action in my life. And uh, it was it was a drastic change. But all I kept thinking was, you know, if I don't like this, I'll just stop doing this and do something else. But at the time, the tech industry, there was nobody was hiring. I mean, everybody was laying off. It was it was cold. I'm surprised that DFR was actually had a hiring freeze on at that time because it first respect. You know, there's always events that happen in our country that that kickstart a field or kickstart a profession. And 9-11 with, you know, it, and also it galvanized the country for a brief moment. But also first responders were were at the top of the pedestal and how the, the respect and also the, it was at that time was people had respect for us and it was an honorable position and people were coming out of the woodworks to apply we kind of went through that a little bit uh after nine uh, after seven seven in 2016 because i sat on some of the interview boards and there was a lot of people that applied just because of that that event they felt the need to go out and serve you know and you you wanted you you didn't want to go back to your career in tech it wasn't a good time for it and then you just well i need something i need some action because you're you know you grew up fighting and and working at a tech place, there probably wasn't a whole lot of that. Yeah, looking back, I don't know. The guy might have been just BSing me. You know, he might have I, – I didn't look like I look now. I was, you know, 30, 40 pounds lighter. I was still the same height. He might have taken one look at me and been like, no, nah, skinny man, get out of here, you know. So, I don't know. But, it, you know, it. I guess I half believe in fate, half don't. But everything kind of – happened for a reason at the time you know so the next thing i knew i was signed up to start the academy in 2002 what academy class i was 274 okay so we uh we went to the academy and 
again, I, I was just in there cause I needed a job, you know, and I showed up and everybody else was super gung ho. And I did what I always did. I just adapted to the people around me. I was like, yeah, you know, hoorah, let's go pick it up. And the whole time I'm just thinking, this is, just, you know, just, just work, just settle down. And, uh, we had a guy in our class. He was a uh, rehire with uh, like a 4,000 badge number, David Alcala. And, uh, it came time to do elections for class president. And the first person raises their hand. They're like, I would like to nominate David Alcala. And I should have learned from his response. He immediately raised his hand. He said, thank you very much, but I don't want that position. So the next hand that went up, they were like, I want to nominate Steve Hodak. And I was like, oh, wow, what an honor. <laughs> Looking back, I should have been like, no, nah, I'd like to follow in my uh, uh, senior partner's footsteps here and uh, turn that shit down. But uh, it was interesting. It was interesting being nom- or uh, becoming the class president for my academy class. How did you handle that? It was it was good. It, you know, I had to deal with the the people that became um, the what do they call them? The squad leaders. Yeah, the little red ropes. On the, yeah. yeah, and. Uh, there was a couple of them that really wanted the position I had and you know, I had to deal with that and I had to talk them off the ledge and, you know, they'd get mad at decisions I made and stuff. But I was like, well, you know, I was the one they picked and these are the decisions I've made and I stand by them. Um, the really, really tough part was, uh, we had a, one of our Academy classmates died in the Academy. It was Sterling Jones. He died after uh, trying to take the retest for the run on the track. Um, his, pH level of his blood turned toxic and uh, they they rushed him off to the hospital and we thought you know he'll be all right he's just you know he needs some fluids or something and uh, I got a call later that night from the class coordinator and she was like you know Mr. Jones is not doing very good and then I got another call later after that and they were like Sterling died and I was like man that's tough you know that was my I wasn't even out of the academy and I'm dealing with you know losing friends and stuff like that I was like that was a very real moment. Like, I don't know anyone that can say that they've lost an Academy classmate in the damn Academy. How old were you then? I was 24, 25. You're 24, 25. You're, you know, you're a leader for a class and you just lose one of your, your brothers. I mean, how'd you, how did you keep it together to deal with that? It was forward. It was really, really rough. Um, I have and still have to this day a very – everybody – nobody likes going to a funeral, okay? that's goes without saying. I tremendously struggle with funerals because seeing good people suffer and cry at a funeral just rocks my world. And uh, when we went to that, seeing his family and, you know, seeing my academy classmates that were – you know, even closer to him than I was, it just, it just messes me up. And, uh, you know, everybody says, you know, funerals are tough, but I mean, funerals are like me going into open heart surgery. I mean, I get that nervous about going, they're very, very difficult for me to attend. Wow. I wasn't expecting that story. I, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was tough. And, but you know, when we get together at our reunions and stuff, we always honor him and uh, talk about him and stuff like that. So it's, you know, his, his legacy lives on and he would have been a really good officer, but uh, it was, it was a tough loss. So when you graduate you get, you 
finally get out to what division? Uh, Northeast. Yeah, I was living on Channel 2 at the time, and when we got to put in for our selections, all <laughs> all I knew, because I didn't know anything about Dallas, really. You know, I had lived here and I'd worked in Deep Ellum, but it's not like I was getting out and hanging out in South Dallas or Northwest or anywhere. All we were told was that Channel 6 was the country club, and, you know, this and that. So I was like, well, I don't think I want the stigma of choosing Channel 6. Not that there's anything where there's plenty of crime everywhere. But uh, I I was currently living on Channel 2. So I was like, well, I want to work or close to where I live. And that was a mistake as well. <laughs> was number two uh, choice central? Uh, no, number two choice was southeast. And ah. uh, number three choice was central. Because I, I was on the east side. I didn't want to go anywhere west. Okay. I was wondering if you picked central because that's where you worked. And you're somewhat familiar with the geography. We'd have loved to have you at southeast, by the way. <laughs> But uh, I was very blessed when I got to Northeast. I had three good trainers. I had uh, Steve Huff, Jeff Wigington, and Jeff L. And uh, that looking back and seeing some of the trainers that people end up getting, I, I man, I lucked out getting those guys. And uh, they taught me a lot. <clears throat> but where I really, really learned was when I got on Little T and started riding partners. I was in, assigned in the 30s, which was over like the uh, – at the time it was Kingsley. Now it's Walnut Hill and Wickersham area. And the squad, I mean, if you look back now at the squad that was there, I couldn't have got any luckier. It was guys like Casey Shelton. He's probably one of the best detectives on the department today. Um, Jay Darst, he's a legend in his own right. Uh, guys like Leo Alleman, who's now a Border Patrol. Um, Roger Brock, those guys. And uh, Donovan Kuhlman. And those guys took me under their wing. So, like, they would have their regular partners. Casey would usually ride with Jay and stuff like that. And when one was off and the other one was one man, they would let me ride with them. Those guys taught me how to chase dope, and that's where I went from there. I've always been a proactive policing, not reactive. Reactive policing doesn't make any sense to me. My brain can't compute it. If you want to send somebody to take a robbery report after the fact, I mean, my mom can do that. It's like a cleanup crew. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to get them. I wanted to get out and get them before they did the crime or while they were doing the crime. So I just became a hard charging dope chaser with those those guys. Those guys taught me everything. What did you like most about that? Um, I liked the fact that I was getting a ton of experience. You know, when you're doing arrest report, felony arrest reports every night, you're getting a ton of experience. I thought it was crazy that you would have people you know in your detail that had been on the department 25 years and they didn't know what floor to go to when they went to Lou Starrett and you know I I think if I <laughs> went back to patrol now I you know who knows I might assimilate into a role like that and just take my reports and call it a day but I mean how, I couldn't wrap my brain around it how can you not know how can you not know what the UCW rules are how can you not know you know, what this is, what that is, how to fill out these forms, how to fill out a record sheet, you know. So I liked getting out there making those arrests. It was exciting, and it would get me to jail every night. And I've always been good at the paperwork. And so typing the reports was no problem for me. Um, so we would get out there and, you know, run and gun, and then we'd get to the jail, and I'd, I would always volunteer to do the paperwork because it was super easy for me. Back then, were you calling in reports, or were you actually typing them then? At no, that point? We, were, we were typing them. Uh, I remember a second phase of training when I was with Steve Huff. Um, 
he was brand new to typing in reports so we would go to jail and he was just like figure it out rookie so i would just ask around at the jail and you know he would give me all the time in the world that i needed he was a good dude but he was just like you're you're gonna have to figure it out you know ask around ask the people that work here and learn how to type these reports so i I wonder if whoever came up with our training system right you go through your your fto training and then the little t is is such a big part of your training that i i'm curious if they realized that it was going to be that big of a a a blessing to actually have good partners or if it was just a hey we don't really trust you to do it by yourself yet so we're going to stick you with somebody else Yeah, it was a liability thing they didn't realize how formative it is in your early police career of how much it can impact you and 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 shift your trajectory as a cop on training in itself you have to learn the department's way of doing things and, and there's a lot of value in, in understanding what you're actually supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. But it kind of limits your exposure to a lot of other things because those trainers are trying to teach you everything that you're supposed to learn in those few weeks that they have you. Then when you go on to Little T and you have those basics down, then they can show you some advanced stuff. And I think that's a, a brilliant program the way we do it here. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, and Danny's absolutely right as well. I believe that if I had ended up with you know somebody that would – traditionally be described as a slug that i might be a slug you know i'd be miserable and i wouldn't know why because i'd think well this is just the way it is this is this job but i ended up with the right dudes and i i can't give enough credit big shout out to roger brock he uh when he came back to deep nights from days on northeast we i was just blown away that he was willing to ride with me he was like yeah i'll ride with you let's let's do this and roger had so much experience he kept me out of trouble. He taught me the way to do things, and we had a great system in place. We were working deep nights, so if we we were doing traffic stops nonstop, if we pulled somebody over, if they had guns and drugs, gang, whatever, I would do the report. If they were DWI, he loved DWI. He would do that. And, man, we worked great together, and I know some people have their opinions of Roger, but Roger showed me the way and really kept me out of trouble. So, There's a common theme with people that come on the show with – gravitating to chasing dope and and being proactive uh when they just get out on the streets and every every station has had their crew southeast we had ours and i was lucky enough to work under some really good veteran officers just like you were northwest the lance crawfords and eggleston you know they everybody has their own little pack that they learn from and um i don't know if that exists anymore out there but to the level of veteran officers being that proactive uh and then also willing to bring in young officers to teach them yeah it was it was definitely one of those things you know with with roger because everybody else that i had mentioned jay and casey and donovan and all that they were all young um they were a little bit older than me but they were still young and they're you know they're wanting to get out there and the great cops um but roger was significantly older and but he was like hey they're paying us aren't they let's go out there and do something you know, it's going to make this day go by a lot quicker. Would you rather answer a bunch of domestic violence calls and take reports and take photos or, you know, work a wreck on the freeway in the middle of the night? I'm like, no, <laughs> let's get out there and let's arrest somebody. So we would, we were chasing people in the car when you, back when you could do that, you know, on foot. I remember bailing out of the car several times and hearing Roger yell in the background, wait, wait. <laughs> Did you blow him away? Yeah. Well, no, because he would chase him with the car. He was smarter than oh, me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> He'd be on the other side of the alley waiting for him. What led you to the deployment unit over there? Um, the guys in deployment at the time, just 
to me, they were rock stars. They were so cool, you know, and I wanted to do that and the thought of being plain clothes. So, you know, again, going back to everything, even though I was a patrol officer for the Dallas Police Department, I was proud of who I was. I did not get along very well with most cops. I got along with my little group, but a lot of officers have that, you know, super proud, puff your chest out, I'm a cop, and they they can't turn it off. They get off duty and they get around each other where, you know, you're in a fishing boat with them and all they want to talk about is work. And then they go, you know, to dinner with your family and all they want to talk about is, you know, what happened last night on the call. And that was never me. I'm like, turn it off, man. I, it, I don't appreciate any of that. <laughs> I can't relate. I don't think about this stuff. Um, so going to deployment was my first chance to get out of uniform. And the thought of getting out of uniform and allowing me to blend in with criminals, which is who I blend in better with anyway, I was able to be a lot more effective. Um, and uh, it allowed me to get very close to situations, which, you know, led to the shooting and all that stuff. Okay, let's get into the shooting. So uh, there was a string of ATM robberies that were going on, and these guys were just jacking people as they pull up to the ATM and, uh, the Northeast robbery unit was on it, man. They were <laughs> tracking these dudes down, getting closer and closer. And then one day I was actually parked in a parking lot, talking to Casey Shelton. We were just catching up for a minute and it came out on the radio, you know, that one of the officers was in chase over off of uh, Greenville near lovers. There was a bank of America over there. So we just immediately, you know, blasted the gas and we're flying down there in our covert cars. Um, I think I was driving a black Mustang at the time, so I was I was ahead of everyone. And um, once we got down there, the traffic that came out on the radio was that an officer was down. What had happened was a guy that was chasing after the suspect, a uniform guy, he jumped a fence, and when he jumped a fence, he, like, impaled his leg, like the side of his leg or something like that. So all we heard was officer down, so that really put me on blast because I was like, okay, now this guy's, like, taking out cops. So we get down there. We're driving. It's a swarm of, you know, cop cars and deployment cars. And You're I thought, in the M streets, right? Not at that time. Not yet. We were still over. The, everybody was, you know, in a concentric circle right around what was happening. And I was like, we would have found them by now. I got to expand the circle. I got to go outside the circle. So I went beyond where I thought it was. And I went down to Mockingbird. And when I went to Mockingbird, I saw a dude, just by chance, I saw a dude in the dark, bolt across the street, matching the description, and he ran into the M streets. So I go down, I call Air One, and I'm like, hey, you know, he's in the M streets, he's over here. So then I start creeping around in my car. I see him walking down this one specific alley. I tell Air One exactly where he is. And it's nighttime. I, you know, I've been up in Air One. I know how impossible it is to label streets and stuff like that. I see Air One coming. I'm like, oh, they got him. They got him. Here he comes. And all of a sudden, it's like, and they're gone. <laughs> they're five streets south of where I had said. So I was like, shit. So I start creeping down the alley. I make it all the way to the end. I guess while I was going down that alley, he saw me coming and he ducked off to the side. I get all the way towards the end of the alley. Now I'm coming up on, I'm headed towards Greenville Avenue. And I see. Lester Page and a couple other guys just flying down Greenville Avenue. Nobody knows where he is yet. And I was like, man, if he made it to Greenville, these guys would have seen him by now. So I get to Greenville. There's no cars coming. I make a U-turn, and I go back into the alley I had just come out of. As soon as my car enters that alley, 
The suspect is right in front of me. All he sees is me sitting in a car. So he pulls up his shirt. He starts reaching in his waistband. I was like, he's going to carjack me right here because he doesn't know I'm a police officer. I already had my, my markings on, but he couldn't see into the tent of the car. So I, instead of staying in the car, I jump out of the car and I draw down on him. And he takes off running. So again, Roger would be so, so sad, you know, instead of just chasing him with the damn car down the alley, I'm on foot. So as I'm running down the alley, he pulls a gun out and points it behind him as he's running. And I, instead of stopping and shooting, I dive off to the side. So I hear him jump a fence right there. So I get up, I've got my, what, what do you call the position? Harris. Harry's? Harris. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Harry Harris, whatever. I got the Harris position, you know, and I've got my pistol in one hand and my flashlight in the other. And I bring it up on the chain link fence and I click it on and I see him running in this backyard and I, I pan to like, you know, put my sights on. When I do, my flashlight catches the fence the you know, the top of the chain link fence and goes flying. And the guy yells, I'm going to kill you. So, you know, I, I saw my sight picture of where he was. I started squeezing rounds and I heard him scream. So I stopped shooting and I took cover. I was looking for my flashlight. Everybody's closing in on my position. And uh turns out I, I hit him through the bullet entered the back of his knee and exited his kneecap. And uh, he ended up crawling uh behind a, a hot tub in that backyard and man the gang unit, Larian and uh uh Aaron Glenn and those guys, they were there like they were in the car with me. I mean they were there lickety split. And, uh, they, you know, as soon as they got there, they pulled me off. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, them like, you know, they walked me out to my car. They told me to sit in the car. Don't talk to anybody. Um, they went back, they found the dude. And, uh, that was my first experience with uh, a shooting. And it, it was strange because, you know, when you do it, you feel justified. I, I was justified in what I did. Um, but as soon as the process starts, man, you feel like I'm going to jail forever. What year was that? Oh, man, I don't remember. Exactly. 2010. Yeah, it was. A, you were in my neighborhood. Yeah. I heard an officer down, and I turned on the radio, and the helicopter was going above my house. And then I heard you on the radio with the shooting. And Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you, were, you Weren't you trying to get everyone like, I'm over here, yeah. trying to tell everyone where you were? <laughs> hey, was that that black Mustang GT standard? Uh, yeah, it was a, a, a standard. That thing would fly, man. Yeah, <laughs> that was. They were like, "You don't want this one, man. It's a, it's, you know, it's a manual." And I was like, "No, no, no, I'm used to driving a manual." And man, I could work the the Bubba radio and the, the regular radio. It was loud too. Yeah, it was, man. But you could get right next to people doing crime and just sit there. I'd wave at them, you know, nod my head, stuff like that. And you couldn't, you know, in deployment, you can't interact with anyone. You can't like buy dope or anything like that. But I'd sit there and. I'd have people come up to the car, try to sell me drugs in the car, and I'd be like, yeah, hang on just a second. I'd call, you know, uniforms over there. I had one guy. This one made the paper. Um, so I'm driving around. I'm drinking uh, soda, and I spill it on myself, so I'm pissed off, right? So I yanked the car into the gas station. I don't know if it's still there, but it was at Southwestern and Lover's Lane. And uh, I pull into the the up to the pumps. I throw the door open. There's nobody there. There's a guy, this uh a younger white kid standing by the front door, like homeless. And, uh, I throw open the door and I get out and I, I walk over and there's no paper towels in the pumps that where I was at, but they were at the next pumps. 
So I'm walking over. I grab the paper towels. When I turn around, I see him making a beeline for my open door. My car's running. Door's open, right? I see him making a beeline, but I'm way ahead of him. So I finally, I step in front of him, and I was like, can I help you? Now, I'm unmarked. You know, the car is a Mustang. He goes, yeah, I'm Sergeant like Kershik or something like that with the Dallas Police Department. I'm undercover. I need your car right now. I was like, is that right? <laughs> he was like, yeah, you need to step aside. I'm commandeering your vehicle. And I was like, you can go fuck yourself, Sergeant. So he so he was like, really? Really? You want to say that to a police officer? I was like, I really do. I really, <laughs> really do. So he steps Did you off. get a control number started? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so as soon as uh, I get back in the car, I get on the, the radio and I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but there's a guy impersonating an officer. He tried to take my vehicle over here. So uniforms are over there, lickety split. They grab the dude. So I end up pulling up behind the convoy of, of squad cars and I walk up to the guy and he's like, oh, I knew I knew you were an officer. I was just joking with you. I was like, bullshit. And Did they, you tell him to go fuck himself again? <laughs> <laughs> it made the paper and uh, they wrote in the paper, you know, if you're going to impersonate an officer, make sure you're not talking to one. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So when you get in that shooting and you said you you felt like suspect, you're going to go to jail. What do you what do you mean by that? There was a great group of guys. Um, I don't remember their names, but they were the SIU unit at the time. They were amazing. And, you know, uh, Bob Gorski showed up with um, I forget the name of the guy. He was retired DPD uh, detective, but he ended up going to work for Gorski and he would help, you know, counsel people and stuff like that i forget his name he had glasses but anyway those guys showed up and you know they're telling me this is you can say this you shouldn't say that you know they were like tell me exactly what happened i told them they were like okay you're gonna be fine but don't make a problem where there isn't one don't say this don't say that and uh you know when siu was interviewing me they were very fair with me you know definitely no beef with those guys but just sitting through that process man i'm being interviewed by the best detectives on the department because I shot someone and you know, I left and I asked Bob, I was like, but you know, Bob is, am I going to be all right? He was like, you're going to be fine. He was like, you didn't shoot a kid, you know, from kindergarten at Sunday school. He was like, you shot an armed robbery suspect who was trying to kill you. And I was like, Oh yeah. So I, but you have to wait, you know, you got to sit there and wait and you, you know, pins and needles. You don't know what's going to happen. And, man, it's stressful. That is super stressful. It is really nice to have someone of Bob's stature, though, show up and, and talk to you and put it in those terms for you. You know, because you, you're not thinking that right there. Your your mind's everywhere running all at the same time. And to have him break it down for you. Yeah. And and it's it's really weird. I mean, those guys, the way they – just the words that they choose to use and how they say what they say is really calming in those situations. It was. And the next day when I saw this, the story on um, the local Fox station – I got to give props to Sean Rabb, man. He he really did me right. You know, he, he doesn't know me for anything. And he, he pointed out the fact that the woman who was getting jacked at the ATM was a retired kindergarten teacher. You know, he pointed that fact out. And he was like, you know, an officer's did this. And Officer Hodak, you know, shot and detained the suspect. You know, and he he, he, he told the truth. And that's rare. You know, Sean Rabb's always been good to yeah, us. Yeah, not for it's not rare for Sean, but you know, mainstream media, it's it's rare for them to tell the truth to make officers look in a you know positive light. And Sean Rapp, he he was solid, rock solid. He's so. fair, you yeah. know, and that's that's kind of what what's rare. You know, it's not that he's pro police, yeah. but he's he's fair about everything that he does so far. So I like well, him. Our community and our department used to do a good job of standing up for us. You know, and obviously things have changed, and that's across the country. 
that that's changed. But I remember back in the day being involved in stuff as well and seeing other officers involved in our media, our community, and our department always did a good job of telling it exactly how it was. So how did that change you? Like, looking back now, how did that change you as a professional, as an officer? Um, I... I received, it, you know, I don't want to sit here and say I received kudos for it because it wasn't like people were going, hey, good job shooting somebody. But I received, started to receive the respect for actually, you know, working hard enough to get into that position. You know, it, as unfortunate of a position it was in, you know, people really started to come around on me because, again, I, I did not fit in. I, I wasn't. I don't, I don't know if I was well-liked, but I definitely didn't fit in with the other guys. And uh, that let them know that I was I was on board. Um, it was kind of tough. at the You know, you go the next day to the pistol range to turn in your gun or uh, to get a new gun because they take your gun the day of. <laughs> the guy at the range was like, were you using your front sight or, you know, sight picture? I was like, I was using the force, sir. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. He was like, what are you talking about? I said, okay. Let's go into a room with no windows. I said, I'm going to flip the lights off and start running around the room. You hit me with your gun. He was like, oh. I was like, yeah, it's like that, you know. So, <laughs> you know, and then the guy, some of the uh, older guys back at the station were like, oh, you know, you need to get to the rain. And, you know, people commenting on the uh, the news site were like, this sounds like this officer needs to get more trigger practice, you know, stuff like that. I was like, you have no idea what it was like. You know, it was it was a split second. And I was shooting in in practically zero light. It's easy to armchair quarterback in this profession, yeah. but uh, but you know uh, the shooting itself didn't affect me not one bit. Uh, I've never thought twice about it. You know they asked me at the uh, the the mental counseling after that the mandatory mental counseling. They were like, you know, when do you think you can go back to work? I was like, right now. And they were like, you don't have to be a tough guy about it. I said, I'm not. You don't understand me. This stuff doesn't affect me. Um, I I don't have emotions like that um it's not that i'm callous to it it's just that i don't think twice about stuff like that we're going to get into the to your emotions and your psychological makeup in a bit but after that shooting i want to get into you kind of transitioning over to financial crimes and how, how did that happen yeah there was a uh, posted opening in financial crimes and uh just went down and did the interview and just like a couple of the other, <laughs> it was, I, I think I was like, I had been a senior corporal officially for like four days and I applied for the Marshall's task force. <laughs> and those guys, they just laughed at me. They're like, how long have you been a corporal? I said, four days. They're like, oh yeah, um, this is, you know, maybe, maybe not the uh, perfect position for you. But anyway, I went down to a uh, financial crimes and uh, John Lawton was the sergeant at the time and did my interview and, you know, talked about my background and stuff. And it was couple days later he called me i you know still working deep nights for deployment and he called and woke me up and he was like sorry for waking you up but uh i'd like to offer you the job i was like he's serious he's like yeah are you ready i said i'm ready and that's when i made detective i was very very thankful that's a lot that's a big jump from days of dope chasing and northeast to working undercover driving a mustang and getting to a shootout in the dark backyard to financial crimes yeah, what were that you a, thinking that was a how would you do such a thing it's a lot of paperwork well i remember at the interview i talked to him about my you know 
computer background, Yahoo and stuff. And they all kept telling me, you should apply at Fusion. I was like, I do not want to work at Fusion. I mean, no disrespect to Fusion, but that's not for me. But I wanted to make detective. I wanted to do investigations. And this was my opportunity. People don't get a lot of opportunities unless you go back to property crimes. You know, and even then you got to wait for the guys, you know, that have been there 20 years to do another 20 years before they retire. So this was my chance. So I went in and I completely consumed it. Like I learned everything I could. I had a great trainer. Another shout out to Jason Sibley. Um, oh, great. Yeah, he listens to these, by the way. Yeah, he's he's a phenomenal guy. He was an amazing detective. Uh, he still is. And uh, he taught me the right way to do it and how to do it. And I took that and I, I caused some disruption in that office. And, you know, Jason will tell you that I was in there. I was like, why, you know, why are we doing this like this? It could be more efficient if we did it this way. And uh, I ended up having, you know, some of the highest clearance rates in the unit. And after I would file on the guys, I would go look, not physically go look for them, but I would deploy units to go look for my suspects. So my, my actual arrest rate clearance rate was really high. Um, and nobody was doing that. It was the due diligence that was required at the time. And what was required was real minimum, but uh, you know, I was actually like, Hey, let's go arrest these people. I tell you what, I, <laughs> it sounds weird financial crimes, but I really enjoyed it because for the first time in my career, it felt like those were real victims. These are real people that have real bank accounts that are getting jacked by some asshole in his underwear at home online, reprinting his checks or washing his checks, stuff like that. And it really felt good to help real victims. Yeah, that. We have not touched on the financial crimes topic. Uh, I'm trying to get, uh, he's also ATO board member, uh, Justin Bowen. He's still in financial crimes. I'd like to get into that topic when it comes to uh, the financial crimes because it's probably changed drastically from whenever you were there until what it is now. And also the swindle the swindle aspect of, uh, of that uh, offense. I think I'd like to get into that. Yeah, those are... Those are some great stories at the time. The swindle unit was just two guys. It was uh, Don something and uh, Mike, and uh, they were doing all those gypsy cases, and those were fascinating cases. Yeah. So on your bio, you got LIFOed. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Yes. What is LIFOed to explain Mm -hmm. that? So LIFO is an acronym for last in, first out. So at the time, there was a scandal in family violence completely unrelated to me or anyone I know. But I guess these guys were taking cases. They were just suspending cases right off the bat, taking them home, sticking them in their garage, in boxes, never getting worked. So those guys ended up getting caught, ended up getting fired. Um, And they panicked because they had all these family violence cases. Now they had a huge backlog of cases that had never been worked. So they panicked, and they didn't want to bring new people up from patrol. They wanted experienced detectives to come in and solve the problem. So they went to um, a bunch of... Uh, what do you call the different type? There's like type one offense, type two, those things like type one is like robbery, murder, assault. Yeah. 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 And then type two are the ones that don't affect your city's Mm -hmm. crime stats. So that's like financial crimes and things like that. So they went to the type two, uh, divisions for detectives and they came to a family violence or uh, financial crimes. And they said, we're going to need two of your detectives. Well, myself and Chris Lowe were last in. So we were first out, and we got shipped off to family violence. Another guy from uh, auto theft, uh, Smiley, he got moved over to family violence at the time. And, uh, you know, it sucked. It, it sucked, you know. That is what, a lot of work. What year? Um, I don't remember exactly. Uh, 2013, maybe? <clears throat> yeah, maybe something like yeah, that. Weekend in 2013. Yeah. 
but it was uh it was tough you know people would call and they'd be like so how you doing man i'm like not good i just chipped my tooth you know like how'd you chip your tooth i was like well i was sticking my gun in my mouth so fast that (laughs) the front sight took my front tooth off yeah so what what about that how long were you there in that spot not long i was only in family violence less than a year yeah wow it was a few months and uh you know in patrol uh i had the the pleasure of working for a guy named Barry Ragsdale and uh, he, you know, he, he had come from narcotics. He taught me a lot of things, you know, on how to chase dope and stuff like that. And he had gone back to narcotics as a supervisor. So uh, <laughs> I'm sitting at my desk in family violence and my desk phone rings and I, you know, I'm miserable. I answer I'm like, you know, family violence is Hodak. How can I help you? And hey, all, pig, all you want to come work for me? All I hear is, you know, Barry had a very uh, iconic voice, and all I heard is, you ready to swing a bat? And I said, who is this? And he goes, it's Barry. You ready to swing a fucking bat? And I was like, Barry, what are you talking about? He was like, I'm back in narcotics. I got some openings. And I was like, I, you know, I pulled the phone away from my ear for a minute. I take a look around. Everybody around me wants to kill themselves. I'm looking at the pile of cases that I just got, you know, how I hate my life and I hate looking at these cases because uh, who wants to willingly sit there and read stories about how family members are attacking each other, you know, and you get 10 cases a day. Yeah. I put the phone back to my ear and I said, yeah, when's the interview? Let's do this, you know, because I had always wanted to go to narcotics, but at the time it just didn't work out for me as far as like, um, you know, the, the rotating shifts, the third watch and cause I had young kids at the time and I, you know, I didn't want to mess up my family life. Cause again, I was going back to, you know, it's just a job, just a job, but I was like, I can't take this shit anymore. So I went home and I told my, my wife at the times now my ex-wife, I was like, Hey, I'm applying for narcotics. We got to make this work. And you know, she was supportive. So, so once you figured out Barry wasn't inviting you to the department softball <laughs> league, <laughs> you apply for narcotics and you obviously get it when Barry squad, like, how did you early, early on getting over there? How how was that like for you? Because you're back in plain clothes, you're doing proactive work. It's kind of a combination of deployment and actually chasing dope. How was that? It was really good. You know, I I didn't know how it would be, and I know, looking back, I know that that's when the stigma that has followed me through my career began. Um, I had a great squad. Danny was on my squad. Chris Wood. Um, Cody Brazier, Colin Humphreys, Colin Humphreys. It was a really good squad. Very and, good squad there. You know, we, we were able to work together and learn from each other. We were all new, you know, Danny and I went up there, you know, the same time. Um, and we were able to learn and adapt, but from day one and you know, I, I took a note here, you know, my, my entire undercover career, I've been told you can't do that or Hodak can't do that. You know, you're, you're white. You don't have enough tattoos. Uh, you only speak English. You don't speak any other language. Uh, you don't look like, you know, insert criminal persona here. You don't look like that. You aren't ghetto enough. You you're, talk- not, you're not wearing a ball cap and a T-shirt that has a rock band or a beer on it, and you're not wearing cargo pants. Right. You're never going to be able to work undercover. Right. You, you talk too normal. You don't talk like they do. You can't do it. You can't do this. And to date... As of this recording, I've successfully portrayed the undercover roles of drug dealer, drug user, drug cook, gambler, money launderer, sexual deviant, 
human trafficker, thief, left-wing anarchist, right-wing white supremacist, hitman, arms dealer, and a terrorist. And I've done all those things despite my entire career being told, you can't do that. So here I am, and how do you like me now? And that's a big reason why you're sitting here, and I want to memorialize this your your career because I, I know all this about you and you're not the kind that likes to sit around the office and tell war stories about what they've done may or may, or may not be embellished because you know why because you're not sitting there telling your war stories you're actually out working yeah and I'll, I'll tell you this right now I am not by any stretch of the imagination the best you see that's ever been I am not a good street level $20 crack by UC. That is not where I excel. But can you do it? I can do it. Exactly. You know, I have done it. I tell you what, you ask anybody in narcotics and they will tell you that one of the best ways you can be described is he can buy dope anywhere or she can buy dope anywhere. In my opinion, that is the biggest fucking insult a person could give me. Because you know who else can buy dope anywhere? An informant. A crack whore. Anybody that we've flipped, they can go buy dope anywhere. You are setting the bar so low. How dare you? How dare you pigeonhole me into he can buy dope anywhere? And to this day, I'll hear it. And when I hear it, I just nod my head and laugh. Ha <laughs> yeah, he's an awesome UC. He can buy dope anywhere. So can informants. That's what they're for. Those are some of the most dangerous situations. You know, I tell you the roles that I've played, and you're like, wow, is that super dangerous? Man, not as dangerous as buying crack in a trap house. Like, but why would you go when you can send somebody else in there? The things I've done, you can't send somebody in. I think that going back to what you were saying earlier is that the department, and I'm not coming down on Dallas PD, but law enforcement agencies in general, set the bar so low for undercover activity. I believe, and if I had a say in it, I would push this notion all the way to the chief's office. Every division on this department should be using undercover operators to further their investigations because undercover work is more than buying drugs. It's more than playing a slot machine. It's more than picking up a prostitute. Every division could use undercover operators if skilled, to further their investigations. And SID should be used by everyone. People can be trained to do these things. I can be trained to do these things. I did not, I was not born knowing how to do this stuff. You're not born knowing how to ride a car. You weren't born learning, knowing how to do a podcast. But as you do it, you get better and better. And you excel at this now. You excel at driving. You excel at, you know, you guys were in SWAT. You weren't born knowing how to make entry and set up shape charges and blow doors off, but you're taught how to do it and you're successful. And the department uses the SWAT team for every tactical thing they can think of. Every division uses you. Why aren't we using undercovers in every single division? Why can't forgery call me and say, Hey, I need you to go buy stolen checks from these guys. Or I need you to go into this money service business 
and try to pass this fake check that we printed here in the office to see if this MSB is dirty. Why aren't we doing that? Because it's not the way it's always been done. Exactly. How many dynamic entries have you logged? I think I've done around 500. Um, at the time, Danny can vouch for this. You know, during the summers, we were doing three a day. And you do that multiple times a week. I mean, that, that adds up really fast. You know, and then when I went over to FBI, you know, we're still doing entries. And I'm still doing them today. I did, I did one yesterday with the IRS. Um, so logging those entries. Again, I, I remember my first time in the warrant van. Everybody's like, <laughs> I'm looking around the warrant van. Some of the guys are asleep. Some guys are joking, you know, talking about what happened yesterday, things like that. My heart, I can hear it in my You're ears. You're breathing heavily through your nose. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. all I can hear is <laughs> boom, 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 boom. It's my own heart. You know, and the warrant van opens, and I'm I'm the last guy out of the van, you know, thank God. <laughs> last guy out of the van. And uh, But I found once I got over that, I was able to process it and uh, – uh, Barry pushed me up in the lineup uh, against a lot of people's um, liking, and before you knew it, you know, I was a couple months into narcotics, and I'm I'm first man out of the, out of the van. I was running one, and uh, you know, it, was, it goes back to one of my trainers, Steve Huff. I was telling you, I asked him, I said, "Where'd you run in the SWAT team?" He was like, "One." I was always one, and I said, "Is it because you're the best?" He goes, "No, I'm not the best." He goes, "But I can process the information rationally and calmly and react." And I think that's, you know, what working your way up the lineup was at the time, you know, for narcotics. So it, it was a lot of fun. I, I like doing all, I like doing all the positions, the rake and break, the, the breach, the pry. Um, it was, it was great. I'm very happy. I got to do all that stuff. I think your reputation, especially starting off in narcotics was always one of, um, he can do it all. I mean, it, and I always look at those types of identities or roles as being real important. Like if, if I can look at you and say, Hey, can he come over and help us? Cause he's great with investigations and paperwork, you know, or, Hey, can he go and do some UC work for us and buy something or, or get, get some more evidence on this or, Hey, can we put him in the van, run a warrant and we can count on him. And that's the reputation you always had is you were solid and, and pretty much everything that you did up there. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I really liked working with you, Danny up there. Um, to me, <laughs> people had their opinions of Danny and, to me, it's the Tom Brady syndrome. That's how I look at you. Um, I remember in 2017, I think it was, the Patriots were playing the Falcons. I was at some Super Bowl party, and I didn't give a shit who won because the Cowboys weren't in it. And uh, Falcons were beating up on the Patriots, and everybody's like, oh, good, I hate Tom Brady. And I was like, why? Why do you hate Tom Brady? And they're like, oh, you know, he's got a supermodel wife, and he's, you know, he never loses, and he wins all these championships. And I was like, you like him because he's better than you because it comes naturally and he's better than you. There's nothing bad about that dude. Sounds like a hater. Yeah. And Danny had Danny was in my opinion, he's got the Tom Brady syndrome. The dude is good at freaking everything naturally. And I am drawn to that. I appreciate that. And I think that's, you know, a, a great quality. And a lot of people, um, you know, immediately, they see something that you're good at, another thing that you're good at, and they're like, oh, this fucking guy. And I'm like, why? Why don't you like him? Because he's better than you at everything, and he doesn't have to try? I'll throw a caveat in there. It's not that he doesn't have to try, but it's that he dedicates himself to learning how to do it the right way and 
enforces that through practice and repetition. He, he nothing comes natural to Danny. And the best he, part about he just it makes it work is he doesn't sit there and tell you it, like it'd be the kind of thing where you'd walk into a room and there'd be a guitar and he'd be like, do you mind if I play that? And be like, you don't know how to play the guitar. And be like, yeah, I know how to play the guitar. Like he never told you, but then you find out he's amazing at something else, but he's not the guy that comes in there and beats his chest and tells you, you know, I'm good at this. I'm good at that. So I, that's why I always liked working with you, man. Cause you were really good at your job. And if you had stayed, I think, you know, you did what was right for you. And, uh, you know, what made you feel fulfilled. But I think if you had stayed, you'd be right there with me in these scenarios because, uh, you know, your ability to adapt and think outside the box. And that's what this stuff takes. It's not following the norms. You follow the norms, you're going to fail, and you're going to be a guy who can buy dope anywhere. Thanks, Steve. I'll edit out this block. What's the (laughs) time mark on this? (laughs) No, I'm going to also pile on that too because, you know, the great Michael Jordan, he made a comment. He's he never has seen a hater that's doing better better than him. And I and whenever Danny, uh, you know, when I got over and started working on that CRT, he was already on it like six months before. And I heard, oh, he's a cocky fuck. You know, and I've I've already talked about this. And I was like, okay, but I got over there. This guy is good. He's loyal. He's a hell of a teammate. He's freaking good, naturally good, instinctively good. And that's rare to find. I mean, there are people I I've heard the shit talking i've heard the sh- steve I've, I've heard the shit talking about you i've heard it talking about danny and i've heard about other people but i always go back to really consider the source because wolverton and hodak you you have people sitting up in your office that are some of the shit talkers and they know who they are and other people know who they are they're the ones that do the most shit talking but they can't do what you do and they can't do what danny Kennedy does or, you know, and what he will do. Yeah, I, I just think it's – that's one of the big misconceptions. You know, when, when people are brought up to the narcotics office, they are immediately told and taught. And this is old school thinking, and I have no beef with any of the old school detectives that taught it this way because, you know, I'm sure things have changed over time. But the general thought, Danny, you can vouch for this, was we are going to treat you like a piece of shit while you're up here. Because if you can't handle this, you can't handle the street, right? Now, there is some truth to that. The the street work is hard. The trap house buys are hard. But if you go out in the field and you talk to somebody on the street the way we talk to each other in the office, you're going to get your head blown off. Because nobody talks to each other on the street like that. How dare you disrespect somebody like that? And all we do to each other up there, you know, until you get until you cut your teeth is you get disrespected and shit on, you know, and it's, I hate it. And whenever I see new people in the office, I'm rarely in the office anymore. Cause I'm housed out of a different building. Whenever I come to the office and I see new people, I always go up and shake their hand and tell them who I am and tell them if they ever need anything, they can call me. And they look at me like I'm from outer space. Cause I'm the first person that hasn't come up and called them an asshole without knowing them, you know, because I, I didn't appreciate that stuff. I endured it, but I didn't appreciate it. And that's not the way it should be. You should embrace the new people. You talk about undercover work being your critical incident. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, um, I never knew what really, what I was doing. You know, when I joined the department, I told you, I, you know, I drew a liking to dope chasing and I thought, well, this is where it's at, you know? And then I went to financial crimes and I thought, 
no, this is where it at. This is great. If I didn't get life out of life out out of financial crimes, I'd probably still be there today. I really enjoyed it. What is it just the investigation part? Just how involved it is, or I think, uh, or is, put, putting a face to the suspect for these victims. Yeah, I think I I I picked it up. I, I picked it up kind of naturally, and the fact that I was successful quickly at it. I think anybody likes something that they're quickly successful at, you know, and, uh, I became successful quickly and I really enjoyed it. So I was, you know, being tasked to go out and like do uh, presentations for, you know, uh, civilian groups and businesses and stuff like that on financial crimes and identity theft and credit card abuse. And I, I was just embracing it. I was like, this is great. I'm good at this. People like, like this. They like what I have to say. And, uh, at heart, I'm a, I feel like I'm a teacher. And I want to teach people. Um, but once I started doing undercover work, I had to fight through all of the negativity. The you can't do this. You're not the right one. You don't speak Spanish. This and that. And the more I fought through that and you know, told myself, I can do this. I can do this. There's got to be a way. There's got to be more than this. Undercover work is more than what we're doing here. Um, that ended up, you know, I, I only did a year in street squad and I applied for a lab squad and everybody laughed when I did. Cause they were like, you've only been here a year. You're applying for lab squad. I was like, there's an opening, isn't there? All they can say is no. And I went in and I presented myself and, um, Al Sutton contacted me and was like, I want to give you the job. And I was like, all right, let's do this. And that pissed some people off because there were some people in that office that that was quote unquote their position. And I took it and I did good. I so now I'm, you know, I move into lab squad and I'm embracing the chemical aspect of it. So I started studying chemistry on my own and I went to, uh, train. My first lab training was at Camp Dodge, uh, up in Iowa. And we were up there and we were cooking meth and blowing things up and stuff like that. And I, it was, it was great, man. I, I was just absorbing as much as I could. Um, and then I got a chance to go to Quantico for the actual DEA lab training. And again, we're up there and we're cooking more meth and we're talking about, you know, TATP and all these different, you know, problems that could occur uh, in, in laboratories. And I was just absorbing it. I was trying to take as much as I could. You know, I was trying to learn from, from Tim Falk and uh, Mike Nunez and those guys because they were the subject matter experts. So I was, you know, just learning everything I could, trying to be the best at it. Well, the lab squad, um, we've briefly touched on it before. That was kind of the, in the narcotics office, that was kind of the cream of the crop in that unit, in that, in that whole, that whole office. It was a, it was a great squad because, uh, at the time there was street squads then there was mid-level and then there was lab squad. Lab squad was like a pseudo task force, if you will, only consisting of DPD members. But it was at the time it was like a double promotion because not only did you get to the freedom to do mid-level type cases and spend more money. But you also got, you know, a, a, a car to use because you always had to keep your lab equipment with you because you could be deployed at any time. And we were, we were getting deployed, you know, to clean up labs and things like that. Um, so it was just really, really good to be a part of that and learn from those guys. Steve, before we get into continuing the journey through narcotics and where you're at now, I kind of want to take a little detour and get into you as a person and your psychological makeup. We kind of touched on it briefly earlier on back in the way back three hours ago during Yahoo talk and broadcast.com <laughs> talk. 
but I want to get into what we've talked about offline about who you are and, and what you found out about yourself. Yeah. So during this journey, um, I underwent an extensive psychological battery, um, to really teach me about myself and for them to be sure that I could handle, you know, what I was about to be put under during that I was, to my surprise, I was clinically diagnosed as a high functioning psychopath. And I heard that and I was like, what? I'm not a crazy, you know? But uh, once I started diving into that and learning more about it, the more it described me to a T. So there's a, a website called The Learning Mind. And on it, it has nine traits of a high-functioning psychopath. And tell me, listen to this, and tell me that this doesn't describe most of the high-end undercovers that you've known through your career. You are highly skilled in manipulation. You are evasive and deflect responsibility. You understand empathy but don't have emotions. Your confidence borders on arrogance. You must win at all costs. You hang on to revenge. You blame other people for your failings. Power and control motivate you. You change your behavior to fit into society. Nailed it. But, you know, going back through some of these, so like you're highly skilled in manipulation. When I am working, I can make people feel good about what I'm asking them to do, whether it's being charmed or thinking that they're the only person qualified to do what I'm asking them to do. Or maybe if that doesn't work, I'll use emotional blackmail or guilt trip. Whatever the situation is, um, I will manipulate them to perform the task. And it's not like an entrapment thing. It's just getting people to like. So going back, the essential core element of UC work is active listening, staying calm, and the ability to manipulate. All you have to do is find out what the person wants. I don't care what situation it is. Find out what they want and get them to like you. You do not have to ask them to commit the crime. They are going to do that for you. All you got to do is get them to like you. And the rest goes from there. Um, going back to that list, you know, number two was you are evasive and defect, deflect responsibility. Um, High-functioning psychopaths don't like to be wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong, but it really bothers me. Um, I try to be right. If I don't know, I, I'm the first to say I don't know because I do not want to be wrong. I would rather go find the answer for you and give it to you than to tell you, no, this is the way it is because that's a know-it-all. That's a different type of person. Um, but I'm, you know, admittedly narcissistic and my narcissism is too fragile to accept the criticism or blame of being wrong. Um, I can't, you know, I don't want to sit here and say I must be the best, but in my mind, I'm always striving to be the best. I want to be the best in the situation, um, because that's a winner and everyone looks down on losers. And I, I know that that's not a healthy a way to look at things, but that's the way I look at things. And I think other people that have my same diagnosis, um, the other ones, you know, are pretty self-explanatory that the, you hang on to revenge. That's very true. There was this guy named uh, James Fallon. He was a uh, high functioning psychopath and he was quoted as saying, I show no anger whatsoever. I can sit on it for a year or two or three or five, 
but I will get you. And I always do. And you don't know where it's coming from. They can't tie it to the event. It comes out of nowhere. And that sits with me. Like I always attributed that going back to my Italian roots that, you know, Hey, you cross me, I'm going to end up getting you. You know, I'm not talking about anything violent or anything like that. I'm not admitting to any crimes, (laughs) but when somebody wrongs me, I hold on to it and I can bury it deep, but I'll hold on to it for a long, long time. Years. I still think about events that happened years ago. And I think, man, if, you know, if if it comes to fruition, I'm going to do this or I'm going to say that and I'm going to get them back. Um, this other one, uh, power and control motivate you. (laughs) So I found this little fact, um, studies show that people in high power jobs are more likely to possess psychopathic traits such as low empathy, lack of remorse, glibness, manipulation, and superficial charm. Um, it's, I believe it's estimated that between four to 12% of CEOs have traits of, uh, high function, positive, positive traits of high functioning psychopaths. Um, and then the last one is the one that really applies to this career and what I do. You change your behavior to fit into society. I know for a fact that showing my true self is going to make people look at me differently. So a hundred percent of the time I am showing what I believe society wants to see. I must subdue my character because I am not one of you. And I know that I am someone to be feared and avoided and nobody wants to be feared and avoided. I mean, maybe some true criminals, but I don't want the people around me to fear me and avoid me. But if I show what I'm truly thinking at all times, it's going to cause people to go away from me. So I've tried to master the art of doing or saying what I believe people want to hear. So that way they are more drawn to me. Um, I'm not sitting here saying that everything about me is fake. That's very far from the truth. Uh, People that know me best that are closest to me understand who I treat my, you know, my wife, my true friends, things like that. I am a hundred percent myself around them and they like me because of it. But when I meet somebody new, I adapt on the fly to what they are doing or saying because I am uh, sad to say, but I'm manipulating them into liking me, um, which is what I do on the job. So I would say that my everyday life is an act of sorts and um, undercover work allows me to access my true instincts. So it can be addicting because it's a total release um, maintaining, uh, maintaining a undercover role is easier than real life for me because I can dive into a character and become that person, think like they think, do what they would do because I'm acting on my raw instinct, which is to be feared and avoided. And it meshes with criminal behavior. Um, I definitely understand the right difference between right and wrong. And I choose actively to do right, to do good. The difference is I have no qualms about crossing that line to do bad. So if I have to act that I'm doing something bad, I don't 
think for a second about it after after the fact. I think there's a lot of people that, you know, at one point I was sitting down at a table with a group of Albanians. I thought we were going to start talking about drugs. Within 30 minutes of dinner at a restaurant with people around, we're talking about the prices of slaves. We were negotiating to buy human beings. And I think a lot of people, they would have left that meeting and really rocked their world. What kind of world is this? You know, what, what is happening? But I didn't. I jumped right in. I started negotiating. I started buying people on the fly. And it ended up making a really good case against some really bad dudes. And I don't think twice about it now. It, it doesn't affect me. Like, I understand that there's that stuff in life, but I think that's the the shield that this psychological diagnosis allows me to have just like the shooting, you know, it, it didn't affect me and not in a negative manner. When did you figure this out? <laughs> After the psychological, uh, battery, because I got the diagnosis and I, you know, you get to meet with the, uh, psychiatrist afterwards and a couple of psychologists. And, and I was like, this can't be right. You know, so, so you hear psycho, so you think murder, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is not that you have traits of a high functioning psychopath and here's what it is. And they explained it to me and I've, you know, I felt a little better about it then, but then again, like everything else in my career, I've had to do my own research, dig into it. And the more I read, the more I thought, the more it sounded like I was reading my life story. So you didn't have to research it, right? Right. No, no one made you research it. There wasn't, but that's what you do. And that's why you're good at the things that you do because you can't just let it rest. But how old were you when, when you got that diagnosis? I was in my mid thirties. Did you look back at the rest of your life and think, man, that makes a lot of stuff make sense now? Yes. Everything makes sense now. And everything I do moving forward makes sense. Uh, I'm a much, much happier person. You know, I grew up in the eighties and in the eighties, there wasn't a mental health check. It was either you're just an asshole or you're a nutcase. Nobody talked about mental health. Right. And as it, you know, came more to light and I learned this diagnosis and I started looking back at it, everything makes sense now. And now that I know what it is, I'm so much happier and more content. I'm better at my job. I'm better dealing with my home life because I understand what's happening in my head and why I'm my immediate thought on something where I'm supposed to be empathetic, I'm cold and callous or something that shouldn't bother me does bother me. You know, for example, you know, going back to one of these things, power and control motivate you. My specific diagnosis said that when I'm in a group of people, if somebody is arguing with me, the reason it bothers me so much is not because they are disagreeing with what I'm saying. It's because I feel like I'm losing control and I feel like that person is trying to steal control from me in that situation and that upsets me. And then, like I said earlier, it brings me to tears. I can't control it. So people are like, this guy's super emotional. Get, you know, get your shit together. Stop wearing your heart on your sleeve. It's not my feelings. When I feel like I start to have a lack of control, I'll, I'll bust out into tears. People are like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, well, <laughs> where do I start? Yeah, you got, I'm, you a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a psycho. I'm a psycho. That's interesting because we don't know each other very well, but 
if somebody asked me about Steve Hodak, I'd tell him one of the calmest dudes I know. Like every time I've seen you walk through the office, it's so even keeled that when when you told us what was going on, I was kind of like, makes sense. <laughs> no, because cause nobody in that office is, is ever level, right? Right. Everybody's either super high or super low, depending on where they're at in their investigation. Are they doing paperwork? They're way at the bottom. They're actually out doing their job. They're super excited about everything. So it's it's very rare to find someone who's just there. Yeah, my, my wife, she says that, you know, her her life is, her job is chaotic and, you know, her, you know, her emotions go up and down throughout the day. And she says that that's one of the things she loves is that, I'm calming to be around. And that goes back to the, you know, the undercover stuff. You know, a lot of people see this type of work on television and you got to be a crazy person or you got to be the, you know, the loudest one in the room. There's nothing further from the truth. I'm super calm. And I just let people talk to me and I get them to like me. And once they like me, they tell me everything and I never bring it up, but the criminality just comes. All I have to do is get them to like me, figure out what they want, give it to them. And then betray him. I love it. I want to go back to the revenge uh, portion of the, the characteristic because I play in a fantasy football league with you, and I've won the last two years. Yeah, and it's yeah. my first two years playing, and now I'm I'm kind of worried <laughs> about going for a three peat. I'm, I'm actually scared to even I don't I may even just bow out not play uh, but yeah. I'm I want to apologize now in front of you know we don't have nobody listens to this anyway but I want to apologize to you uh for winning those last two years and I hope you don't hold it against me uh how eye-opening was it to you to 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 become self-aware and now everything's starting making sense and falling in line in 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 your mind of like holy shit going back to growing up in Erie, Pennsylvania, to Chattanooga, to Yahoo, to Northeast, to the lab unit, and, and now in the narcotics. How did that feel for you? It's it's really helped make sense of a lot of the problems I've had in life, a lot of the stressors, the, the really tough moments, looking back into my childhood. Why did I do this? Why, why was I fighting all the time? Why couldn't I just let it go? You know, and... I'm sure at some point my, you know, my parents will hear this podcast and maybe it'll shed some light to them as to why, you know, I put them through some of the stuff I did, but, um, it's just been, it's been eye opening, And this is the first time I've ever talked about this publicly. Um, a lot of the stuff I've said here today, no one has ever heard this stuff. And, uh, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. This, this being on this podcast is a part of my my growth, you know, of my mental health and getting right. And I, you know, I really thank you and the assist the officer foundation for doing this for me and for everyone else, because this is a big part of the growth to keeping us all sane. And I hope somebody else hears this and learns that, you know, there might be an underlying reason why you feel the way you feel and why you do what you do, you know, like get it checked. And when you get a check, man, it might open the door to happiness. I've enjoyed you talking about this, so thanks for doing it. I mean, at the beginning, this is the first time I've ever heard anything from you on this. You know, I know we talk occasionally, but never has this come up. But just this right now explains 
how I knew you in narcotics when I said there's always this part that you were gripping and holding back and sometimes it looked like a facade would go up like ah this makes sense now for sure with Steve like I just accepted you for who you were and this is the way you were and I just knew what kind of person you were but you've gone through this and, and you're explaining it now I'm like ah yeah this makes sense when I knew you back then I still hadn't received this diagnosis yeah. so it was still tough for me it was to a con- struggle probably of, to control it yeah yeah, because that's what I say I could feel you grip like you yeah. would, you'd hold back on comments and things you'd want to say and it's like and I knew you'd get frustrated with certain people and then later on it just kind of come out like and I'm like yeah yeah man I I saw what you saw too I, I understand but yeah you were always kind of gripping something. Did it equip you with tools on how to? Now that you knew this about yourself, did it equip you with your own tools to work it like work it to your benefit? And understand it and uh, and apply it to your life. It did because it reaffirmed that if I just ignored the outside noise of you can't do this, you can't do it, you can't do it, Steve. You, you'll never get that. You, we're not even going to put you into that role. You're not going to do it. If I just ignored that and relied on my instinct, I was always fighting my, my whole life I've been fighting my instincts because it, you know, it, it would cause people to, to drive it would drive people away so when i would work undercover i would start listening to my instincts and uh, i was on a deal one time and uh i was posing as a bomb maker and these guys were in the room and we had brought a bunch of food in that they liked to eat like dates and hummus and all this stuff you know for their cultural foods and I was admittedly nervous and what I thought I had said to them was, Hey, uh, you know, I got to step out, enjoy some of this food. I'll be back in a little bit. And later when I met up with, you know, the, the people that were listening in and supervising this deal, they were laughing and I said, what's so funny? And they said, well, it was just funny how you screamed at them. (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? They were like, when you screamed at him about the food, I said, what? So they played it back. And what I said, I was nervous. And what I said was, I got to leave, eat this food. And these guys, cause when I said it, I thought I was offering it to them. And I was kind of like having an existential moment. I was outside of my own body. When I offered it to them, they dove in immediately. They were scared to death. <laughs> And I was like, wow, they must have been really hungry. And I left the room. And it turns out I had yelled at them. I had ordered them to eat this food that I had prepared. <laughs> so they dove in. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. And I got better at it from there, you know. How did it help you in the art of undercover work? Can you explain that? Yeah. So I believe that I'm one of those people that believes that it is an art. It's not, you know, it's something you have to work at. You have to practice and you have to teach yourself and there's a lot of stuff that goes on outside of the office that you got to get ready for your role um there's a a ton of stressors in undercover work and i'm sure some of them are very obvious but like you know fitting the role of the person the role conflicts uh identity transformation the strain of staying in role um, multiple identities at the same time working you know different cases uh how do you exit a role um how do you enter a new role uh, self-monitoring, I uh, wrote some of them down, occupational socialization, master status, role distance, self-selection phenomenon, emotional labor, working personality. 
you know, the two, two main stressors uh, that affect undercover work uniquely from other police work is loss of identity and the reintegr- reintegration in, back into society. And that could be something as simple as you spend, you know, 20 minutes buying crack in a crack house and now you have to turn that off so you can go home to your family and not be that guy or that girl. Um, that reintegration into society and it gets progressively worse with a longer case. Uh, you know, like you had said in the intro, you know, I've never, I'm not some world-class undercover. I've never, I'm not Donnie Brosco. I've never worked a long-term case like that, but to reintegrate back into society over and over and over after you're playing these different roles, you know, you go from buying human beings or stealing things and then you have to reintegrate and you have to act right. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people in undercover work. Steve, so we, we went into the art of undercover work, which you've, you should pull back the curtain a little bit. What kind of advanced training and, and shout out T-Bone. He wanted me to get into the, uh, press you on some of the advanced training you've, you've had. So it's been really eye opening. Um, the training's been long and involved and I've been able to work with several different, you know, state and federal agencies across the country to receive training in this field. And, uh, some of the training has been pretty brutal. I mean, involving sleep deprivation, uh, mental and physical abuse. I know you're thinking, what, what are you talking about? I'm talking about like getting your ass kicked during scenarios. Um, lack of food, food deprivation, if you will. Um, and just putting you in situation after situation. Um, at one point I was lucky enough to receive training that involved, um, counterterrorism, uh, where <laughs> I went into me, a white guy went into it and, you know, I consumed it like I did everything else. And by the time I left, they were like, you act and sound and pray like you've been studying Islam for your whole life. I mean, I don't speak Arabic, Farsi or anything like that, but I was able to follow, follow along, which led me to the roles of being a sympathizer. So I'm never going to convince somebody that I know, you know, Abu Muhammad al Adani or whoever the guy that leads ISIS now is, but I can be a guy that can, that I'm on us soil and I can help, with your cause because I'm a sympathizer and I just don't care about this country. And, um, some of that training, uh, they, they teach you in the training, uh, different ones. One was, uh, teaching you how to escape, assuming that you were going to get captured. So it starts off slow, but by the time you're done, you are bag over your head, locked in the trunk of a car, handcuffed behind your back. And then you got to escape. And, you learn how to do those things. I, uh, I brought in this bag. I know the listeners can't see this, but this is a bag of things that I've learned to use to pick handcuffs. And these are, I don't want to say exactly what they are, but they are regular household or, you know, health and beauty items, things like that, that I can, I frequently hid on myself or attach to myself. That way, if I was discovered, um, you know, by authorities and they were like, you know, if you have a handcuff key on you, they're like, Hey, what are you doing with a handcuff key? But if you've got one of these other items on you, you can 
come up with a story real quick and be like, oh yeah, I didn't even know I had that. Sorry, it was in my pocket. But I can use any of those items in there to pick handcuffs. And uh, we learned how to, you know, get out of being tied up, uh, <laughs> different things like that. I know it sounds weird, sadistic and stuff like that, but it was very helpful and it gives you confidence to where if you get into those situations, which thankfully I never did, um, but you can get out of those. But for a long time, I carried those items on me whenever I would travel, whether it was for, uh, you know, if I was leaving the country on personal, you know, vacation and stuff like that, I would carry those. Cause I thought, man, if I get cuffed in a room and it's foreign government and you know, and I feel bad about the situation, I'm, I'm walking out of there. I'm looking at these items here. Uh, I'm not going to name them all, but I'm looking at a, it's a, a toupee, a <laughs> lipstick eyeliner, <laughs> I'm now you're really going to confuse I'm, I'm people. Yeah. yeah, that's the point. It's uh, I'm trying to manipulate the uh, the listener. Uh, you actually, before we started recording, you gave me like a demonstration of uh, your Houdini skills of getting out of cuffs with just a tiny little piece of of, uh, of an object, and it was quite <laughs> impressive. You did it like uh, it, it's like a second or two. Yeah, I would I would practice. Um, I still practice at home. I don't, I don't know why. But just like everything else, I try to consume it, you know, so I'll, you know, have my kid cuff me behind my back and, you know, within 20 seconds, I can be uncuffed and, you know, out of it and stuff like that. And it's, it just, it's stuff like that. All those training things give you confidence to where, man, if something happens, you know, if somebody is going to tie me up, what should I do? You know, how do I present you know, things like that? Um, but yeah, the, the training was great. Um, the, some of the best training I got, I had to pursue on my own because, again, I faced this this roadblock of, you know, you can't do that. Um, during some of this training, we got some explosives training, to you know, to learn basic explosives and how to, you know, talk the talk in a very general sense. That way, if you hear these things when you're out and about, um, you know, you can report it back that, hey, they're talking about making explosives. So I asked the question to the hires, uh, the higher ups, you know who's the guy that does this nationwide? Who's the bomb guy? And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, who's the bomb guy? Who's like the UC bomb guy that, you know, when you have like a bomb situation, you can send them in and they can talk the talk and talk about bombs or make bombs for somebody or, you know, pretend that they're going to make a bomb for something. They're like, yeah, nobody does that. And I was like, well, that's stupid. So I went and I started teaching myself bomb stuff, which I'll get to it in a minute, but hindsight, you shouldn't look this stuff up online because things will happen. So I started looking up, you know, the different, the five components of bombs, initiators, the switch or detonator, the charge, power source, and the container projectiles. I had to teach myself about um, oxidizers, fuels, uh, cap-sensitive water gels, slurries, um, emulsions, cast boosters. Um, I had to learn the difference between high explosive and low explosive, um, uh, for the listeners at home, that's the velocity of detonation. A high explosive generally detonates above the speed of sound. Low explosive is below. Deflagrates. Yeah. The deflagration um, or uh, me- meaning. The <laughs> okay. So deflagration is the heating until a rapid burn. You heat something until it burns rapidly. Uh, so like a high explosive would be something like TNT and a low explosive would be something like black powder. Um uh, I had to study the differences of pressure. Pressure is very important in that field. Um, for example, C4 has a much higher pressure, peak pressure, than TNT. They're both high explosives, but C4 is much stronger. And then you've got something called ONC, 
which is way stronger than C4 or other plastic explosives. So like TNT and ONC are shock sensitive. So I had to learn about shock sensitivities, or I'm sorry, they are shock insensitive, meaning that you can move them around in trucks and cars and things like that without worrying about them blowing up where something that's extremely shock sensitive like TATP, you know, just dragging your fingernail across it on the table is going to cause an explosion. So I had to learn all these different things. I didn't have to, I chose to learn these different things and uh, teach myself this stuff. So um, without going too far into it, that led me to many different agencies being interested in what I had learned and what I was teaching myself and applying it to the undercover capacity, which opened doors for me across the nation to do different types of work. So I've gotten to work with a lot of different agencies um, and been able to apply these concepts to the greater good. Speaking of other agencies, so you got on the FBI task force, is that correct, at some point? Yes. Um, Yeah, after Lab Squad, I was... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I was in the uh, break room at DPD and I was in the lab squad and uh shout out to Bodie Sarton. Bodie comes up to me and he's got this real cool laid back style. He's like, Hey, Odak, uh, you like it in the lab squad? I was like, yes, sir. I like it. He was like, all right, that's great. And he walks away. And you know, a couple of weeks later he posts an opening on the FBI task force where he was the supervisor. So I went to him and I was like, Hey Sarge, uh, can I apply for that? He was like, I tried to give you the job three weeks ago in a break room. Remember? <laughs> I was like, you asked me if I like Lab Squad. I said, yes. He was like, oh, okay. Well, I figured if you liked it, you wouldn't want to, you know, come come work for me. I was like, no, I definitely want to come work on a task force, please. That's a great Bodie impersonation, by yeah. the way. You're very adaptable. <laughs> Steve Hodak. <laughs> yeah. So I went to work for Bodie over there, and, uh, man, did it, that open up my eyes. So at the time, in narcotics, this isn't taking a shot at anyone, but this is the truth, and anyone back then can tell you. The DEA Strike Force 1, they were back in the office every other day talking about the 20 kilos they got, the 10 kilos they got, this and that. Everybody in the office was like, man, Strike Force 1 is where it's at. That is the major leagues of narcotics evolution. I went over to the FBI, and once I got accepted and brought in, they sat me down and opened the books, if you will, you know, mafia style, and read me in on all the stuff they were working on. And I was like... I want y'all to know that nobody knows any of this shit that you guys are working on because they don't talk about it. And to this day, we still don't talk about it, but everybody at the time was like, yeah, FBI guys, you know, the TFOs, they're over there, kind of a grift squad, you know, just stealing air, you know, collecting their federal overtime money. They were working on some major, major shit that I ended up winning an award for. Um, cause I was able, I was lucky enough to jump in on that. Do you but, talk about that? Yeah. So uh, at the time, uh, they were working a case, and it was a follow-up from a previous case involving the same thing. And this is all public knowledge at this point. But uh, it was a group of FBI undercovers and agents here that uh, they were working a case out at DFW Airport. Where So if, for people who don't know, the different gates at DFW Airport, the baggage handlers are generally clustered by race. I don't know why that is, but it, it's, it is. So like one gate might be all Tongans and one gate will be all Puerto Ricans and another gate will be all, you know, uh, black folks or Mexicans or whites or whatever. They just cluster them all together. So the first case um, that they successfully did was against um, the Tongans. And uh, at that point, they were getting Tongans to fly on 
airplanes, the, the undercovers, the FBI undercovers were getting tongues to fly on airplanes with methamphetamine. It was synthetic, you know, it wasn't real, but they didn't know that. And they were flying it around, delivering it to different parts of the country. Um, or just putting it on, you know, in the bags on the plane. And then DFW airport didn't handle their security protocols, in my opinion, um, effectively. So the FBI opened up another case and it was on the, uh, the Puerto Rican, uh, gate. And it started off by the same thing, putting, you know, synthesized methamphetamine on planes that, you know, they were taking the bags from us, from our undercovers and putting it on the plane. And then an, an undercover in another city would recover the, the bag. And uh, we're building the case that way. And eventually <laughs> through the undercover work, started asking, you know, well, will you put anything on a plane? Okay. Well, you know, what about explosives? And they're like, well, it's not going to go off. Is it I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So we took the case down, took the guys down. Um, and, uh, Ended up winning the, uh, all of us, uh, won the U.S. Attorney's Award for Excellence and uh, had to, got to go to a really cool presentation. And, I, you know, I, I had a very small role in that case. I, was, I came in, you know, on the tail end and I was assisting. But it was, it was really cool to open my eyes. Um, it was always funny because, uh, shout out to Paul Appiano. He was, I, I sat right next to him at FBI and he's an amazing officer. Love that guy. Yeah, Paula, if you listen to this, forget about it. Um, but Paul said something that I'll never forget. Uh, he was like, yeah, the undercover work, you know, through DPD and these other agencies is fine, you know, but it's not like what these guys are doing. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, everybody wants to come in and brag about, yeah, I bought a kilo. I bought two kilos. I bought five kilos. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, these guys are buying Stinger missiles. You know, try pulling that off. Try convincing somebody to sell you a surface-to-air missile. And that's what these guys were doing, and it it opened my eyes. That was the moment that opened my eyes that there's more to undercover work than buying drugs. And I was like, I want in on that. I I want a part of that. So I paid my dues, and I, uh, uh, you know, was accepted by the, you know, the FBI undercover program. And I can't talk about any of that specifically, but... I made it through, I succeeded, and I made some lifelong friendships with some of the guys in that unit, and my friendships with those people, the other students that successfully completed the program, um, I think the, I want to say like 700 people applied to get into that program when I went into it, and nine of us graduated, and um so the, the caliber of people that made it out of that were great. And I, I made lifelong friendships with them and they live all over the country. And through them, I was able to get work. I was not able to get a lot of work in Dallas, you know, like most federal agencies, they don't like sticking people that live here into situations here, which makes a lot of sense. You don't want to, you know, shit where you eat if, you know, for lack of a better term, but I was able to get work in other cities and I had to, you know, manipulate my way into those situations. So that way I could do work for the greater good and get my experiences. And that's, that's where I've done my work is around the country. And you've worked on, I know you can't talk about them, but you've worked on terrorism, domestic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, domestic terrorism and, uh, international terrorism. Have you ever been shipped outside the U S to work? I can't talk about that. All right. Okay. 
I'm glad you gave a shout out to the great Paul Lapiano. He was one of my go-tos whenever he was in the lab squad. And just as you were, whenever you were up at, you were up in narcotics in that office, uh, when we would stumble into something, I would always call you and, uh, and Chris Wood and once, you know, Danny, Danny, uh, was actually on the phone with me whenever we literally stumbled into a, a house and I thought I'd turn the phone off and I put the phone in my pocket and then I go to pick it up to call him like several minutes later. I'm after sitting we at the, the desk house. working on something else and I just kind of put the phone down and let this. Where's your hand, motherfucker? Yeah. Here's your hands. Yeah. And then I pick up the phone and Danny just go, and I, and I realized I didn't hang it up and Danny just calmly goes, do you need to get a warrant? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I loved working with you, Joe. And it, it you know, and Danny, if you want to edit this part out uh, later in the show, this is the part where I talk good about Joe. Um, so I had always heard of this legendary character, Joe King from Southeast, this dope chaser. And, you know, when I started, I, I, I want to say you had called somebody else. You had called Chris or somebody like that. And Chris and I, you know, were doing work together and uh, doing undercover work that I wasn't skilled enough to do, but I, we were doing anyway. And, um, <clears throat> I that's I kind of met you through that and I just became one of your your go-tos that you would call and it was just man it was so great because that was like f- free activity you know you you would do all the hard work and you'd call and be like I need a warrant and be like yeah the paperwork's no problem man I you know tell me what you got we'd swear to it and we'd go and it was it was such a blessing man I learned a lot and I really was able to crank out a lot of search warrants in that one year of street squads just by answering my phone I was told that one time that that's one of the reasons I'm successful in this job is I always answer the damn phone. People call me from out of, out of state, out of country, and they're like, do you ever not answer the phone? I'm like, no. Well, yeah, we're going to edit that out. Um, <laughs> what, what kind of other investigations have you worked that you can talk about, even in a g- general broad stroke? Um. I would say, you know, generally like the money laundering stuff, um, uh, the stuff I do now, uh, working, you know, with IRS and their cases and stuff like that. And the stuff I've done out of state, uh, for money laundering, those have been really great. Those are like the next evolution. Those are, are good cases to work because for me, they're very low stress. You know, you think about buying dope in a trap house, how high stress it is, you know, possible guns out guns on you. People are high in there. You don't know what to think or what's going on. You don't know how anyone's going to react. You know, a lot of these other cases that I've done have taken place in restaurants over fancy meals and stuff like that. So they've been great to work on. And if you can stay in role, you can sit there for hours and hours and just let people talk. And all you have to do is bullshit them. Like I've bullshitted everybody else in, in life and find out what they like like oh they like the san francisco 49ers well let's talk about the niners let's talk about joe montana what about the catch you remember when dwight clark made the catch and next thing you know they want me to take you know 1.5 million dollars and clean it through the system and get it back to them in a form of check in a day and i'm like you got it man (laughs) all right steve we've we've unpacked a lot and at the very least the the listeners in our own department and the people across the country that listen and the people that actually are outside of the country that listen i think the enigma of steve hodak there might be a little bit of light shed on it 
but I want to give you the opportunity to to leave a a lasting impression on what you would like to do moving forward and what you're looking at for others to benefit from your your successes, your your failures and your experience. I would say that I really really would love to help pass along like you said my success and failures, my experience to the people of at least my own department. Um this is not a ploy to get a job in the training unit or anything like that. I like what I do now, but I have subtly been trying for years now to pass some of this knowledge on. And, uh, for example, uh, you know, Drew, he has done a ton of work and he retired. And now what, you know, who else is doing it? And before I leave, I would love to pass this information on. I would love to work with some select undercover operators that we have so that way they can open their eyes to the fact that there's more than buying drugs. And maybe, maybe in the future, the right person hears this, the right person is in charge. Undercover work can be used throughout the department, throughout the city, throughout the Metroplex for more than drug trafficking or vice operations. We could use it for everything. I remember one time we were about to run a warrant on a high-end apartment in uh, uptown Dallas. So I played the role, one that I did not list as average citizen. What I did was I walked into the apartment complex. I told them that I was there to buy. I was interested in buying. They, within three minutes, they gave me the access card to go up and down the elevator as I chose and gave me a key to the exact model apartment that we were about to hit that was empty. So I took video footage going all the way up. I took video footage of a walk. I did a walkthrough on camera in the apartment. And then I called the guys that were outside and they were like, where are you? And I said, I'm in one of the apartments, just like we have. I've got the entire floor plan mapped out. So that way when us or the SWAT team hits it, Everybody knows where to go. There's no surprises. This is the exact same model that the target has. So it was just adapting to the situation, playing the role of an average citizen and getting access to intel. And I I think that's where undercover operations needs to graduate to is intelligence gathering. It doesn't have to be solving the crime, but human intelligence gathering is paramount in law enforcement work definitely on the federal side and we need to apply that to the Dallas police department. Um, and I'm more than willing to help with that. And that's, that's where I would like to see all of this go. You know, you bring up Drew Ortiz. Drew Ortiz did a lot of great work. He had stuff people didn't even know, know about. Do you think these people or these, I'd say kids, these kids in narcotics even know who Drew Ortiz is or. Yeah, they might. And I think, you know, they're, they're still to this day probing him for information for training purposes. Um, but the fact is, is he's, he's moving on. He's, he's got a life and he's got a life outside of law enforcement now. And that, that treasure of knowledge of his experience, he has done phenomenal work around the country and it's gone. 
because we haven't dipped into that information. For example, would it be so crazy if the SID unit kept a log of all attributes and special skills that every undercover operator has? Let's say, for example, somebody in their life before law enforcement was an 18-wheeler driver. What if we had a log where, hey, we need somebody who, you know, used to be a gambler. We need somebody who was an 18-wheeler driver. We need somebody who knows how to drive a forklift. And we had a, a catalog of that information. That way, when a situation came up and they were like, man, we need to send somebody into this, you know, illegal card game. Be like, oh, let me look at the book. Oh, these four officers all, you know, were ranked uh, nationwide for the World Poker Tour at one point. I mean, we don't, we're not, we're not diving into the special skills of these people and we're, we're expecting them to just pull a rabbit out of a hat at the last minute and speak up for themselves. But we need to keep a catalog of special skills that people have. Well, I, yeah. And that's a great point. I mean, it, there just needs to be more to the UC work like you're talking about rather than the old culture of I go in a trap and buy dope or I meet in a club and I and I do a deal for a kilo. But I bring up Drew Ortiz because I have to wonder if most of these guys just don't know who he is and they don't know how involved he was in the work he did. So I'm glad you're coming on this podcast because I hope more of those guys start realizing who you are and the work you've done so that they can start looking at you as a mentor and we can evolve and expand in these investigations and in the undercover work. I would love that. I'm more than willing and, you know, I do it in my spare time. Um, I just want to help. I also think that the department should utilize undercovers for the mental health aspect of other undercovers struggling with mental health problems. Um, the reason I say that is let's say I go to a deal and I sit down with a bunch of bad guys for three hours, five hours, you know, we're at a club, we move to a restaurant, we move to one of their houses. That's a lot of stuff. And you don't get, so you might get a seven hour recording, but you don't get seven hours of documentation on paper because a lot of things happen during that event that, you know, the undercover is not recording on paper because it's not relevant. It's not relevant to the case. The, you know, the U S attorney's office doesn't care about every little minutia. You know, it's not a dictation of what happened, but stuff happens and it can cause severe stress for the undercover in, you know, in the blink of an eye, UCs need to be able to sit down with other UCs and explain those situations because we will understand each other. Exactly. You sit somebody down in front of a, you know, licensed, psychologist or psychiatrist or a supervisor or anyone there. The UC is not going to open up. The UCs are taught to be secretive. They are inherently secretive people, but when they sit down with other UCs, that's, that's how I assess my mental health is I call my friends around the country and I talk to them about the shit I see and the shit I go through and they uh, unload on me about their stuff we bounce ideas off of each other. Not only does it further the case, but it allows us to talk completely uninhibited about what is actually happening with no fear of, you know, backlash towards us or breaking some obscure general order 
or something like that. Just even talking about the mind games, it's hard to articulate to another officer what those mind games are like and how much of a stress it can be, like in person for sure, but sometimes like even over the phone, the, the stressors or the mind games you're going with, trying to predict what what the bad guys are thinking and how they're looking at you, it's incredible. I mean, it. I don't think officers even realize. I mean, there's times where it's like, hey, Sunday night at 10 o'clock and you tell your wife, I have to go somewhere. And if I don't come back by tomorrow morning, call my boss because he'll know kind of what's up, like that something didn't go right. You know, it's there's just a whole nother life and a whole nother mental game that is not really touched on. Yeah, the the constant fear of being found out. Yes. Especially when you're surrounded by the, you know, what what's that uh, long, cool woman in a black dress? That, that song, you know, sitting in a den of bad men working for the FBI. That's the opening line to that song, and that shit speaks to me, mm-hmm. you know, because you're sitting there in a den of evil, and if one person figures out what you're doing, it's going to be a real bad day. Steve, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you for your service. You and I have talked quite a bit over the past couple of weeks preparing for this. I'm glad we finally got it, got it down. We've got it documented, and uh, when it airs, I think the uh, I think the listeners uh, in the department and also outside of the department are going to really be surprised and actually look at you differently and understand you a lot more. Thank you for your service. Yeah, uh, Steve, I've known you for a long time. I appreciate all the work you've done for this department, and I appreciate you taking the time to come here and uh, really say some things about yourself that I'm sure are not easy. And I just hope that others can listen to this and not just get something out of it, but also just be inspired. And also realize that you're here for this department as a mentor and, and as a friend. Thanks for coming on. Well, I truly appreciate the opportunity, guys. And uh, just a reminder for anyone out there who's ever wronged me, I'm coming for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I leave the listener with a quote I was sitting in North Central Detail just this morning, and it's up on the, the North Central Detail's wall, opposite of uh, Mike Smith's portrait. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong person stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man that is actually in the arena. Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt.